Amen. Well, let me just start real quickly in, in kind of introduction. Um, I think, you know, we've tried to make available some, uh, some notes for you. And in those notes, you see right off in the bat, kind of, um, you know, to use the academic term, a syllabus, uh, kind of that uh, class, class outline. And, um, and what we're going to do is I'll just give you a real brief update on that. The first couple weeks, this week and next week, we're gonna look at the really the basic principles, the rules of interpreting the Bible. And those are the things that you hear me talk about a lot. They're kind of the foundational principles for interpreting the Bible. Uh, the third week, March 9th, or March 3rd, we don't have class at night. We have, a, um, we have an annual church meeting, so we're gonna skip class that one evening. Uh, we're gonna have kind of our dinner and then a meet, church meeting on that Sunday evening. We'll pick up again March 10th. And for the two weeks after that, we're gonna look at principles and guidelines for devotional study. And so they're kind of like, okay, the first one is really kind of digging out. Um, as we look at devotional study, it's gonna be, okay, when we study this, it's not just studying it academically, but what are guidelines that should guide us in our, in our own devotional study when we're studying and looking to apply. And so we'll look at those. And they're all, they build on each other. And then really the last four weeks is going to be, um, taking it from kind of broad rules for interpreting the Bible. And the last four weeks are gonna focus more on, on specific rules for different kinds of, of literature within the Bible. And specifically, I mean, it, this is one of the things that does cause a lot of um, confusion. You know, when you have the Bible, you don't just have one type of, uh, one type of literature, you have different kinds. And, and we, kind of understand that, you know, so that, you know, we might go to our literature and, you know, you say, well, okay, well, here's fiction, nonfiction, and we, we don't have a whole lot of, of real diversity. You have historical fiction or you have, uh, you know, some different kinds of literature. In the Bible, it had a lot of different kinds of literature, and one of the things that's really difficult is most of the kinds of literature in the Bible are not written today. And so the rules for understanding those are things that we don't, you know, we don't write historical narrative. We even poetry, we have poetry, but it's a different kind of poetry. The rules for interpreting poetry or for wisdom literature, especially apocalyptic literature, th those things aren't written today. And so, you know, we'll talk about this over those last four weeks, but we start, you know, with, with um, when you have what's called the didactic or the epistles or things like that, you know, we all, that's easy for us to study because that's a, a form that's still generally written today. It's very straightforward. It's a teaching format. Um, and so that's the easiest for us to study. But then when we get to all these other ones, there's a lot of times it's like, well, what's it trying to say? And things, things are a little bit more difficult because each one has some, some different rules and kind of different, it's understanding that form of, of literature and what it's trying to say. And so that's what we're gonna do the last four weeks. I, I do wanna encourage you that at any time, please, you know, please feel free to raise your hand, ask questions. Um, I also wanna, I think we have there in the notes that what I'd like to do is to, um, you know, each week if questions are sent, to begin sometimes, and it might be questions about the previous week or what about, you know, you talked about this rule and what about uh, this passage and how would you apply it or anything like that. Or, you know, you talked about this and, it, okay, you know, if you, if you, I sent my email address or put it in there. If you send any questions in, we'll try to spend some time each week kind of going through and answering some questions as well. So we wanted to give you a chance to do that. Um, we will have a, if you notice in there as well, uh, I think we have scheduled for three times. Uh, if you want to come early, 5.45, we'll have uh, pizza beforehand. And uh, it's from 5.45 to 6.30, so that's on, this, on there as well. So, sound good?
Ready to go? All right. Uh, first rule, any, any, anybody that has been at this church for any period of time knows the first rule of interpreting the scripture, right? Because yeah, I say it all the time. Scripture interprets scripture. Um, and now, this is so important. It is so important. And, and generally, what you've got to realize is that, is that people get into trouble all the time because what happens is that they don't apply this rule. And you'll hear people all the time that will start talking about, you know, well, this and this, these different ideas. And, um, and let me give you an example. There was a politician who spoke not long ago uh, who talked about um, abortion being a Christian value. So, you know, I, I would thought that was interesting, and she didn't really refer to any specific passages. She just generally referred to that it was a Christian value that she was, why she believed in abortion. Um, so it was interesting. I even looked at, you know, some of the things, and, and uh, you know, I said, well, what, do people actually believe that? And it didn't take me real hard to find, you know, an article about being, uh, the biblical basis for being pro-choice. Um, and, and it's interesting, this passage has, um, it takes, you know, the book of Exodus indicates the fetus does not have the same legal status as a person because it says that if a man pushes a pregnant woman and she miscarries, he's only replayed, required to pay a fine and, and if it was a full person, it would be a death penalty. And um, so it takes that passage, well, how do you refer, you know, and then you have a number of others that, you know, talks about the priesthood of all believers and that means that the priesthood, everybody has direct access to God and can basically, um, make their own moral decisions, and 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 they and they take several um, stewardship and the uh, cultural mandate in Genesis one twenty seven and twenty eight that every um, you know that we have the responsibility to you know for every living thing on the earth and to, um, and they take that to say well because we have this cultural mandate then we can decide whatever we want to do and and you look at this and you say this thing is is filled with this argument for abortion from the Bible. But every use of the Bible is a misuse. And the fact of the matter is, is that history is replete with this. You know, if, you know I remember, um, many of you know that I spent some time in South Carolina, and you didn't have to look real hard to find people that had been in, this, in South Carolina in the 1800s that had written books that were pro-slavery from a biblical basis, and they are using passages from the Bible arguing for pro-slavery. The thing is, is that if you take the Bible out of context, you can get it to say about anything. And, um, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, that can become a problem. People start arguing, what about this verse? What about this verse? Well, okay, what does that verse really say? What does it say in context? And so what we have to realize is that, is that there's a lot of things that are there out of context that it just, you know, says something well, Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture itself interprets what the meaning of those words should be. And in that rule, there's, you know, there's, there's three sub-rules. You know, and, and, and again, these are foundational, vital. And many of the other rules are really kind of sub-expressions of this. Um, the first sub-rule is that context is king. Um, you know, so that when you look at Scripture, interpret Scripture, well, the first thing that you have to do is you have to look right in the passages around, around it. You know, so, you know, I was talking to somebody earlier and they were saying how, you know, somebody gives you a verse and you read the 10 verses before and the 10 verses after and that will tell you a lot. And, uh, and it's true. 
And, and there's, I actually had some conversation with somebody today, somebody that, uh, that we're visiting for the first time. They just uh, lost a family member very tragically and um, within the last couple of weeks and you know, a young child and uh, we're really struggling with it. And, and so we got talking and I, I started talking about James chapter one. And in this, it's a, an incredible example of, of how context shapes things, scripture interprets things. And a lot of times I hear people will quote James 1, you know, verse 2 through 4 by itself. You know, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let, uh, I'm reading it from the SV and quoting from the NIV. Uh, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Now that's, that's there, and you can take that by itself, and it's saying, and I hear people at times quoting, well, okay, just count it joy, count it joy, count it joy. Well, number one is the, even in the context there, it's, it's, it's count it, consider it, mental. It doesn't feel joy, it's mental. But then right after that, you've got to continue and say the very next words, usually people take it separately, but context is king. You've got to interpret it in context. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, what does it say at the very end of that verse? At the end of the trial, you'll be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. The very next words, if you lack something, which you will, literally is the way it says it. At the end, you'll lack, but in the middle, you'll still, or at the end, you won't lack, in the middle, you will lack. Now, the thing is, is it's real natural. Most people take these verses separately, but they're right there. And it says, consider joy. And then when, it, when you say it, you, got, you can't take verses two through four throughout, without five through eight. And so then it says, if any of you lack wisdom, well, what's wisdom? The best way to understand wisdom is wisdom is the ability to apply biblical truth, right? Okay, what's the context? Trials. And so what is the biblical truth? God has a plan, I can count it joy, so the biblical truth is that I know that God has a plan and I can count it, consider it joy. But in the middle of the trial, literally it says, I will lack wisdom, so I'll lack the ability to be able to know how to apply that truth to my life. And so it says, okay, when I do that, what happens? Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. So in other words, I'm called to, to come to God and God doesn't find fault. He doesn't, you know, if I sit there and say, God, I don't understand, I'm arguing with God, I'm struggling. God doesn't get mad at me for that. He understands, he invites me to, he, in fact, if you really read it in context, he expects it, which is really incredible. It's really incredible. And I talk to people all the time that, you know, Christians are, well, I can't be angry with God. I can't, you know, I can't doubt God. What is God going to think? God's going to think that you're being honest with him. He already knows that you're angry. He already knows that you doubt. He expects us to struggle. Well, then you say, well, how about the next verse? Well, then it says, um, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind. And you say, well, wait a second. Uh, you know, I thought you said we're, it's free to doubt. Well, we are, but what is it saying? Is it saying, okay, we ask with faith. What is faith? Faith is something that is saying we're gonna root it in either what we know to be true, consider joy, or what we feel to be true, I doubt God's wisdom. I don't understand it, I lack wisdom. I, I lack the ability to imply this. Okay, and he's saying now when you ask, realize that you've gotta make a choice to put your faith in what you know, not what you feel. Because if we put our faith in our field, then we're blown and tossed by the wind. Now you see that when you understand this passage in context, 
I've heard people all the time take James 1, 2 through 4, and they, you know, they use it, well, just consider all joy. And it almost becomes a, a, a you know, hammer that we hit people, you should feel guilty. If you're struggling, you should feel guilty. I was with this couple today, and they're, you know, they're like, you know, I mean, this guy was holding his granddaughter, you know, tw- you know, teenage granddaughter who's dying, and he's like, well, I know I should, I should be celebrating. I said, no, you shouldn't be celebrating, you should be mourning. But he had felt this, this, you know, this burden that he had to somehow be happy. And the fact is, is, it, is that he had taken some of these passages, well-meaning, but he misinterpreted them. And when you look at it in context, suddenly it comes alive and it has an incredible depth of meaning. Now what's interesting beyond that is that if you'd study the rest of James 1, what you find is that when it says, consider pure joy my trials when you meet different trials of many kind, okay, the word trial there, and then you go to verse 13, and when it says, when, no one's, when one's is tempted, let, uh, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, the word tempted in verse 13 is the exact same ver- verb, or, ver- or same, same noun, I'm sorry, same word. Prosmos, it's the exact same word. Okay, so, so wait a second. If it's the same word, how come it's trial in one passage and temptation in another passage? Well, it's context. So if you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, what does it mean? Well, if I look right in the beginning, it says, count it joy, but can you count trials of many kinds? For you know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. See, the context tells us what it's about trials. When you look at verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, um, I'm being tempted for God, but cannot, can, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, the context says that the right way to interpret that is, is here is it's, he's talking about temptation, not trial. It's the same word, but again, the context gives us the perspective. Now, is it important to even understand that's the same word? Yeah, it is. Because the word really has the concept of pressure. So what, what, it, what is prosmos? It's, it's the idea that pressure, that on the one hand at times that we face trial, which is pressure from without of circumstances. On the other hand, we feel temptation, which is often pressure from within to compromise. And what we realize is that a lot of times it's the pressure from without that leads us to the temptations or pressures from within. You see how these ideas are suddenly when you understand the context, it all comes alive. But if you don't understand the context, see, you're going to even, and again, you're going to take James 1, 2 through 4, and you're going to turn it into kind of a, um, you know, kind of a, a simple Christian statement of, well, count of joy, just be happy. Um, does that make sense? Let me, let me give you one other passage. And, and this is a passage that I think we often, I mean, there's, there's so many of these passages that will that we're so familiar with and that people quote incredibly often, but we do so out of context. And this is one I will tell you that, you know, I remember teaching on this one time years ago at another church and, you know, I was pointing this out in context and some people were so upset that I taught this that they left the church because it, it kind of disagreed with what they always believed the, the passage meant. Um, so it's Philippians 4.13, okay? A lot of us know that, right? You know, it's like, man, what a great passage. What a great, um, you know, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Great passage. Awesome passage. Now, what's interesting is, what's it mean? 
the way that I've often seen it presented, I mean, it's like Christian motivational posters, right? I can do all things. Athletes wear it, you know, on their eye patch. I can do all things. I can, you know, I can accomplish everything. I can, you know, it's motivational. Now, is that what it's saying? Out of context, it, it's, man, it's a great verse, isn't it? Man, you want to be motivated. You can do all things. Let's look at the context, all right? Let's go to the context. Go to James, or if you're there, Philippians 4. Let me start in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For indeed you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, nor have I learned to be in, for, for I've learned to be in whatever situation I am, uh, am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and a need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, when you study that in context, you find it's teaching about the exact opposite of what people usually claim it to teach. Because what people often claim it to teach is, you have a dream, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Whatever is your dream, if you focus on Christ, he's gonna give you whatever victory, he's gonna give you whatever success that you have. Well, in a sense, there's some truth to it of, of you know, saying if we, if we seek after God. But here's what it's saying. What it's saying from Paul's perspective, Paul's saying, I've been through times that I've, I've struggled, that I've, I've had nothing, that I've, you know, you know, and I've learned to be content. And what he's saying is that I've learned the secret, what I can do all things through Christ, isn't that I can have success in every circumstance that I dream, that every dream's gonna come true, He's saying, I can prosper when my dreams fail. It's saying, I can, I, can, I can succeed when I'm in poverty. It's not saying, well, if I, if I dream, I'm gonna be rich. It's saying, no, I can, I can prosper in poverty and frustration and disappointment. That it's, that it's not kind of a self-help thing. It's actually saying, no, God gives us the ability to prosper in all circumstances. It's not that if I do this, God will give me the circumstance I want. It's that God gives me the ability to prosper in any circumstance, even when it's the circumstance I don't want. I mean, does, that, does that make sense? And so, so there's so many of these things that you look at that you say they really, they come alive. One more real quickly. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, um, in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, it talks about church discipline. And he's talking about somebody that is, you know, that is, um, you know, that is walking in an ungodly lifestyle and how the church should discipline him. And, and it says, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved for the day of the Lord. Now people say, what does that mean, destruction of the flesh? And it's amazing how, again, you interact with people and people come with all these different ideas these different, you know, it's, well, it's this, it's that, it's, well, this is just one more example where you look at it, and it's right here. All you have to do is you go a couple past, past, or chapters earlier, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and let me pick it up in 3.1, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I, fled you, I, feed you, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh, for while there's jealousy and strife amongst you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in any human way? So what is it saying, the destruction of the flesh? What is the purpose of that? You know, I've heard people saying, well, it's, you know, they die or this. No, it's, the whole idea is that church discipline is to put us in a situation 
that God's goal is to destroy the fleshly parts of our soul, the things that would desire the jealousy and strife and the things that are not of the spirit but of the flesh. And so again, that's, that's an example of a passage I've heard all kinds of different opinions about what that passage means, and it's right there. You just go, you know, you just go a couple chapters earlier, and it explains exactly what the flesh is. So we, it, we shouldn't try to figure it out on our own. Our own, you know, let the Bible say it. So makes sense. I'll, 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 with every step, I'll give you a chance to jump in. Any thoughts before we keep next? So point B. Keep going. All right, sub-point B. A is scripture interprets scripture. Uh, Context is king. B, the more clear passages must be used to interpret the less clear. Um, Again, this is something that we make mistakes on all the time. Uh, I'll do a couple real quickly. We have John chapter 15. In John 15, you have uh, Jesus talking about, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and in the midst of this, he talks about, you know, abide in me and eyes you, a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me, neither can, bear, uh, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him uh, will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so it talks about this idea of bearing fruit. Now, I've heard this passage taught and I've heard it spoke upon, you know, the importance of evangelism. You know, so we need to be tied into Christ, and if we're tied into Christ, we're gonna bear fruit, we're gonna reproduce, we're gonna evangelize, we're gonna... And so I've heard this taught numerous times that way. Now, is that what it's saying? Well, here you have to say, okay, well, what does the scripture say? Well, there's nothing there in John that seems to define fruit. Uh, let's see, is there any other passage in the Bible that we can think that defines fruit? Spiritual fruit, uh, fruit of the spirit. Oh yeah, there is. You know, yeah, Galatians chapter five. And so Galatians chapter five talks about spiritual fruit, fruit of the spirit, but the fruit of the spirit isn't evangelism. Now is evangelism important? Yes, I think it is. But that's not what it's talking about here. The fruit of the spirit, Galatians five, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against those things. So, you know, uh, there's no such law. I'll give you another good example. You know, when we talk about um, probably one of the areas that we make huge mistakes on this is when we get to the issues of spiritual gifts. I hear all this kind of teaching of spiritual gifts. And what's amazing is on spiritual gifts, you know, we like to argue about the least clear passages. So people talk about, well, what is the gift of tongues? And if it's this, and I pray in tongues, and this is, okay, well, here's what, and so it's not well-defined, and well, the gift of healing, and, and you know, so that we, we tend to argue about these really unclear passages. But meanwhile, when you really talk about spiritual gifts, there's a lot of passages that are really, really clear. I mean, how many of you, if, I don't know about you, but I've heard this idea of taught, like let's say gift of tongues. Well, the gift of tongues, and you know, and everybody should have the gift of tongues, and people will go and lay hands on and give you, have you have spoken in tongues? Well, I gotta give you the gift of tongues and lay hands on you. You know, what's interesting is there's a really clear passage where Paul says, not everybody has the same gift, and the Holy Spirit gives to each person as he wills. Now that's really clear. Now exactly what some of these other passages speak about tongues are that are less clear, they have to conform to the ones that are clear. 
See, let's start with the things that are clear and say these are the principles that are very clearly laid out in the Bible. And then when we come to the less clear passages, let's make sure that they fit the things that are clear. Does that make sense? So again, that, you know, that it really helps understand and, and, you know, so many things of, of the Bible. Okay, subpoint C. Since the Bible is God's word, we should assume and thus look for a logical consistency. Now again, this is something that sometimes people get in trouble with, that we look at a passage and we see, I mean, I'll, I'll give you even an example a little bit today. When we looked at this, this passage today uh, in John chapter five, I mean, you have this one passage where Jesus talks about, you know, well, go sin no more and nothing worse will happen to you. Well, I could take that passage out of context and I could say, well, what Jesus is saying is that if you, if you, if you sin, you're gonna get sick again. Okay, now, out of context, I can take it and, and interpret it that way. The only problem is that that doesn't agree with the rest of the Bible. And so if, if Jesus says elsewhere in the Bible, or if the Bible says other things very clearly that are, disagree with that, the Bible's not gonna disagree with itself. Get, let me give you a great example of this, and it's actually a really um, commonly confused passage. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14. This, you know, just reading this could get me in trouble. Um, the woman should stay silent in the churches. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Is there anything that they desire to learn? Let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. So does any men have any questions about that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we look at that passage, and what does it mean? And there are some churches that take that to very high extreme. You know, women shouldn't say anything. They should never, you know, in any way, you know, they would say, you know, that we have Stevie that helps leave in this worship in the, you know, the second service, we're compromising, and um, is that what it's saying? Well, let's go to a couple chapters earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, starting in verse two. Now again, in this case, it's, you know, it's context is king, it's, you know, it's the more clear passages interpret the less clear, but it's a logical consistency, so whatever he's saying, they've gotta have Literally, it's the same guy writing it, so it's, it's got to be intended to have the same point. Now, First uh, Corinthians 11, 2, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the, of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Now, he's talking about in the context of the church and a church service, a worship service. Now, I'm not gonna get into prophecy or head covers and all that. Let's not get there. But what I want you to see is it's saying, he's saying here a couple chapters earlier that women are praying and prophesying in church. Now, wait a second. How is it that he's saying in chapter 11 that women should pray and prophesy with head covered, but they should pray and prophesy, but only a couple chapters later he's saying that they shouldn't speak at all? Was, was Paul kind of, did he forget what he wrote beforehand? <laughs> no, it's a, there's a logical consistency. What we have to do is that we have to say that somehow he's saying something here that, that these ideas should fit together. Now, 
because I don't want to just ask, ask the question and leave you all hanging. Let me try to give a real quick, a quick explanation of that. You know, what I think he's saying in 1 first, in Corinthians 14 is, is in the context that he's talking about what, what happened in the, in the churches at that time is it would be common that you would have two or three people that would get up and preach. You see this, it was taken after the, uh, the, the synagogue. You see Jesus at times, he would travel to an area and they would say, oh, you're a traveling teacher? Here, get up and teach. And they would invite people to come and teach and it wasn't something you know, that it was always is planned. You didn't always have like the single you know, pastor give the single message. And so that was common. Now what would happen is that you would have the elders who would be responsible to hear and to respond to what he was saying. And you see this again even in Jesus. There were times that he said something and people got up and disagreed with him and even took him out to stone him. Because what would happen is it was the responsibility of the elders to question the teacher if they thought that he was wrong. Now what's happening in 1 Corinthians 14 is he's talking about the role of questioning the pastor. He's saying if somebody gets up and preaches, then women should stay silent in the church. They shouldn't take it upon themselves to take the role of an elder to get up there and say, what you're saying is wrong. Um, you know, but it's, if there's anything they desire to learn, they should, if they disagree with it, if they think, man, this, you know, that, that just really sounded wrong, they should go home and talk to their husbands about it. But they shouldn't take it upon themselves to stand up and say, this is wrong, I'm challenging that. But you know what? If, if I said something that was wrong, that was clearly wrong, the elders have the responsibility to stand up and challenge me. If we had a guest preacher, there was a, one time I almost did this at a previous church. I mean, the guy was, was like, should I get up and interrupt him because what he's saying is wrong? And I, you know, you know, and, and I have that responsibility. And um, so there is a responsibility of elders, but all we're doing in 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about who is an elder. And it's saying that the role of elder is reserved for men but you know what, the role of ministry, specifically, so the teaching role, so even, you know, you know some of you have been here at times like I've had my sister involved in a message with me, I've interviewed her. Why, because I'm still the elder, I'm still giving the authority. And so if she said something wrong, I'm, I'm there to, as the authority. Um, but the fact is she can speak, she can, she can share, she has a lot to offer. Um, so the, the real question here is saying, no, 1 Corinthians 11 say women minister, they can speak, they, they have a role within a church service, but they don't have the role of an elder who's gonna stand up and interrupt and challenge the authority of, or, or with authority what somebody else is saying because God has restricted that role of elder to men, which is taught elsewhere in scripture. So you see how those things come together? Um, but when you assume a logical consistency, suddenly you, know, you see they aren't in conflict they have to fit together because God's the author of his word. We look for that logical consistency and when we look for it, it's, we always find it because it's there. So, all right, any questions on scripture, interpret scripture? Yes. Well, there's a, there's a, in my opinion, there's a number of passages that speak about women elders and pastors. In 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, or not 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy 2 and 3 would be a key one. Um, you know, so there are several passages that I would, I would believe. Uh, some, some churches have moved away from that. And, and in a lot of ways they have argued that, it's, that it was more cultural 
which I, I think we're going to get into some later things that I think there's a little danger in saying, um, personally, I think that there's some danger saying that certain things in the Bible are cultural and not transcendent. Um, so that, that's more recent. You know, what's interesting is that even some of these churches have argued that the Bible, well, the Bible's taught that. Until 100 years ago, nobody thought that the Bible taught that women should be pastors or elders. Everybody in Christendom agreed that, that was, the Bible restricted it to men. Um, so I think some people are, are very sincere about that conclusion, but I would sincerely disagree with them that I think it disagrees with what the Bible says. So that's a good question, though. And, but it's not saying, I want to be really clear to I should say, that doesn't mean that women can't minister. Uh, it doesn't mean that they can't hold important, even the important roles. You know, for, when people say, well, that's saying that women can't play the important roles at the church, or, you know, I can't be a mom, and my wife can't be a dad. You know, she can't be a husband. Our roles are different. And it's not that my role is more important or her role is more important, that every role is, is equally vital. Um, but for, you know, but the, I believe the Bible does restrict to the role of pastor and elder to men. And that's what I, as our, I would believe that our church would believe that as well. So, so good, thank you. Okay, rule two. Every passage in the Bible is breathed by God and is ultimately about God. Um, you know, first, or 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Um, now, let me give you a couple ideas in this, a couple subpoints again. And this is, again, one that we really miss. In historical uh, sections of scripture, in every passage, God is always the main character. And this is something that we really, really miss oftentimes. Uh, you know, we can, especially like the Old Testament, we can study these Old Testament heroes and here's what David did or here's what Daniel did or here's what, it's always about God. God is always the main character. Let me give you a really great example of that. In 1 Samuel 17, it's the story of David and Goliath. And when I hear the story of David and Goliath, it's often, in fact, some of you might know I'm, I'm a big, big VeggieTale fan. You know, I've, I've, I like VeggieTales and, um, and they do a great job with a lot of things. They didn't, do, they didn't do as good of a job with David and Goliath. And David and Goliath, the whole idea was that, you know, that this, it's David the giant pickle and, and uh, you know, and, and Goliath is a giant pickle. And David, his song is little guys can do big things too. And so it's kind of like, you know, well, you know, little guys, you know, you'd think that I'm little and I can't do it. And little guys can do big things too. Well, the, when you look at the whole story of David and Goliath, it isn't about David and his and his faith and what he believed that other people, it's about God's intervention. It's about when you really study the story, it's about this guy that was so much bigger than David. And David went out there and he said, but I see God who's so much bigger than this guy, you know, than this pickle. Um, and it's all about God. It's all about, and, but the problem is, is that a lot of times we can study historical passages and we can look at this and we can become fixated on what the person did. Uh, but it's always about God. In fact, one of the passages that's, you know, or books of the Bible that is somewhat um, controversial or even disputed among some is the book of, of Esther because God is never mentioned. He's never mentioned by name. But if you want to study the book of Esther, you want to tell me that God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther? I mean, God is all over the book of Esther. The whole book is about God. But the fact is you don't need God to be mentioned by name for God to be there because 
the passage is breathed by God and it's about God. Everything is about God working in, you know, in historical narrative. We're gonna come back to this when we get to historical narrative. It's, it's not a story of what man's stories or what men did, it's not history, it's a spiritual story of God working through people and through history. It's, it's always a God story. And you always look for God as the central character and that, that shapes the way that you see things. So, second of all, in teaching sections of scripture, uh, oh, I forgot, um, I put this in the wrong place. I, uh, here we go. Nope, you know, I left out a point, so let me give this to you. I'm sorry I left out a slide. Um, in the teaching sections of Scripture, God is always the ultimate source of the message. In teaching sections of Scripture, God is always the ultimate source of the message. Second Peter uh, 2, 1 says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a really, really important passage or concept now because it really speaks to a hugely uh, debated issue. Um, I have heard countless times now, you know, when people talk about specifically issues of sexuality, uh, you know, probably most commonly homosexuality, um, you know, this idea that, well, you know, Jesus never condemned homosexuality. And, you know, well, Paul did, but Jesus never did that. And so, you know, so Jesus never did that. And, um, and, and, and you hear that all the time. And, and you look at that and you say, well, how do we respond to that? Well, for starters, I, you know, I, I would disagree with that. Jesus spoke against sexual immorality, which included everything of sex outside of a, of a marriage between a man and a woman. So he didn't come and say, well, let me list all the things that are in here. But he very clearly condemned all sexual morality. But beyond that, that whole argument is denying this whole concept of the second, you know, second part of the point. No, everything is from God. And when we understand that everything is from God, then he's the ultimate source from everything. So to say that Jesus didn't say it is to say that, you know, that the only parts of the Bible that really count are the parts that Jesus said. In fact, that's, that's what I was going to, the, the other part is, I don't know if, how many of you, how many have heard of red letter Christians? Is it, have you all heard of that? That's like, a, again, a really big movement now, is that you have people that are out there saying, well, we need to be really Jesus followers, and so what we need to do is that we need to focus on the red letter parts of the Bible. We need to focus on Jesus' teaching, and so what he says, we're going to focus on that. What he says, you know, you know what he doesn't say, well, we're going to give that secondary. Now, I want you to understand theologically what that's doing. What that's doing is it's saying that God isn't the ultimate source of the Bible. You know, well, we have Jesus and Jesus is God, so he spoke, what we have is, well, that's red letter. Actually, I don't, even, I don't really like red letter Bibles as a whole because, because that red letter Bible kind of assumes, that, okay, you know, these are important things. No, everything that's written, if every word is from God as, as people were carried along by the Holy Spirit, then something that's written in, you know, by Paul or by Moses or by Jesus, they're all of the same value. They're all God's word. And for us to say that certain parts of God's word are of greater value and we should give greater attention to this and we shouldn't pay attention to this because it wasn't spoken by Jesus is something that is, you know, that's a denial of, of something foundational to the whole idea of the, of the authority of the Bible. Um, and so it's really, really important. Now, there are, 
you know, there are some really, really rare, I wouldn't say exceptions to this, but there are a few times, and probably the one I have, I think, in the notes there, one time, 1 Corinthians 7, where, where Paul says, now, I, I'm going to tell, tell you something, but this isn't from God. Uh, let me go ahead and 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were of myself, uh, as, as I myself am, but each one has his own gift, each one of his one kind of another. To the unmarried, I say to the, and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better for them to marry than burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be re- reconciled to her husband and the husband shall not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, uh, he should not divorce her. Um, and, and so what you're seeing here is he's saying this really, really rare time where it's something in the Bible where Paul's saying, now I'm writing this, but this isn't of the Lord. Now, there are many times that, again, I'll hear people that will talk about, well, that was cultural, that was, you know, again, in women elders or the various things. The fact is, this is the one time in the Bible that you have Paul say, okay, this isn't from God, this is cultural, this is my opinion. See, everything else, the fact that this is such, such drawn out, and Paul is really explicit of saying, okay, I felt God called me by his, his he ordained me to write this, to write my opinion, and to tell you it's my opinion, it's not of God, Part of it is saying, I want you to realize that everything that doesn't have this preface, which is everything else in the Bible, isn't someone's opinion, it isn't something that is cultural, it's of God that transcends time. And, um, and so we need to remember that. So, sound good? Any comments or questions? That's... All right, let's go to rule three. This one's got a lot to cover in, in kind of subpoints. Uh, the Bible is by its nature understandable, practical, and applicable. Now again, this is really important, and this is one of the ones that I'll even use an example of how understanding this has shaped some of my messages in the last couple months. Uh, point A is the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. Now, that's a good theological word, and I, I put it in part because there's some humor in that. Um, the word perspicuity simply means understandability, but only, only scholars would make up a word that nobody understands to say that it's understandable. Yeah, and, and, but the doctrine or the perspicuity of Scripture is something that is really important, and it's basically this that God has ordained the writing of the Bible so that it's understandable for every people. So that when it says that God calls us, to, you know, that in the Bible, that, you know, the word of be workmen who rightly handle the word of truth, he's not talking to Timothy as the pastor, saying, okay, Timothy, you should be the workman rightly handling the truth. He's speaking that to everybody. Everybody in that church and everybody through our churches, that this is God's word that is living and active, that, it, that, that we all have the ability to understand it, that we all have the ability to, to take it and to apply it. Um, and not only that, but there are certain things that, you know, I went to seminary, and, and there are certain things that were beneficial, and we're going to kind of unpack some of this, 
that were beneficial for me to take Greek and to take Hebrew. Well, maybe not Hebrew. Well, no, it was. I was just didn't feel beneficial at the time. Um, you know, it was beneficial to take those things. It's beneficial to study some church history, and you know, people go to. I've never been, but you know, go to, you know, to Israel and see things. Um, a lot of those things are beneficial, and they might add a little bit of of color, but they don't add meaning, and they aren't necessary to understand the meaning. That that the fact is that God could develop within you the ability to see incredibly deep truth without going to seminary, without knowing Greek, without knowing Hebrew, without knowing all the church history. It's there in the Bible. It's there for us to discover. Now this is, is really important, okay? Let me start by historically. Um, historical doctrine of it is something that it goes back to the Reformation. Prior to the Reformation, I don't know if, how many of you are aware of, um, you know, in the Reformation period of time, you had people that were put to death for translating the Bible into the languages of the people. You know, so you had, you know, guys like uh, you know, John Huss and um, Wycliffe and people that were put to death for translating the Bible into English, into, into German, into the language of the people. And you say, why in the world would they be put to death for that? Well, the doctrine of that time that really drove the Catholic Church was this idea that the Bible was something that, that, you know, that shouldn't be put in the vulgar languages of the people because the people couldn't handle it. The people, if you gave the people the Bible, if they weren't scholared, if they weren't scholars, if they weren't educated, if they didn't know all these things, you know, they, they would mishandle it. And so therefore, it was kept in Latin, and only those, you know, it wasn't even in the Greek and the Hebrew, it was in Latin, the, the, the language of scholars, because only people that had been trained and, and knew Latin had the intelligence to be able to study the Bible on their own. And, um, and, and so what happened is that you had, in the Reformation, you had several doctrines that were foundational of the Reformation. One was the priesthood of all believers, this idea that we are all priests before God, that we, you know, that we don't need a priest to represent us before God, Christ represents us before God, so we have, through Christ, the ability to go directly to him, that there's one God, one mediator between us and God, that, that the Bible, that God speaks to us directly. And, and in that was also the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone, the idea that our theology should be developed not by the traditions of the church, but by scripture alone. And so this was something that not only shaped the Reformation, but it's something that when you study even history, it's, ama it's amazing now, we, in our, our schools, we don't love teaching the Bible and don't mention the Bible and things like that. When you study history, the, the reason that we had schools, public schools set up was so that you could learn to read the Bible. That's the primary motive for public education. Um, and, and so when you look at the early readers, they were all, you know, all, you know, all the early readers, they, they, all the content was biblical because we wanted to teach people how to read the Bible so that it's something that was defining not only the Reformation, but defining historically. Um, now, that's the historical. How about personal? Personal importance of the doctrine. This is important because if we don't believe this, uh, what's gonna happen is we'd become discouraged. You know, we become discouraged. We feel like we can't study the Bible, you know, on our own. We become dependent on other people. And I'm going to tell you, at times, as pastors, we're, 
we're, we can be really guilty of misteaching this concept. Um, because as, as a pastor, it's one of the things that can be tempting is it's kind of, it's, it's kind of tempting to be needed and for you, to, for you to think that you really need me. And, and uh, you know, so what it's tempting for me to do is it's tempting for me or for any pastor to come out and say, well, let me bring out this Greek. Let me bring out this and let me, and so almost to try to almost nurture this dependency because it makes, makes me more necessary or, or any pastor. And we, and, and we can be guilty of doing this. Um, and, the, and, and even to the degree where, you, again, you have pastors writing commentaries and writing you know, study Bibles and things like that, you know, that are kind of like, oh, you need to rely on, no, I, you know, my job as a pastor, it's yes to explain it, but also to explain how I found it so that you can find it more increasingly on your own. And, um, and, and the goal shouldn't be that you become increasingly, I mean, ideally, I, I, by God's grace, I strive to be a good pastor, a great, te- you know, a, a solid teacher, um, but a teacher that ultimately makes you less and less dependent on my teaching because I'm helping you to become more independent on your study of God's word on your own. And even in that, I, I, you've probably, met, if you've been around, you've heard me say some of these things before. In that, you know, if somebody comes to me after a service and they say, I never saw that before, I don't ever, you know, I would have never seen that, I never, I never, you know, I, personally, that's like, tells me I failed. Because what they're saying is if you say, I never would have seen that, you're saying, I look in the Bible and I never would have found that in the Bible. And, and maybe you wouldn't have ever found it because I added something else in there that wasn't in the Bible that you couldn't have found in the Bible on your own. What's encouraging is when people say, I never saw that before, but I see it now. You know, I, I see where you got it. You know, you, you, you kind of, you not only helped me see it, but you, see, you showed me how, how it drew out from the Bible. You see, what you wanted, what I really long for is that people that become, not dependent, but really independent. Um, Hebrews chapter five, it says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. That's their goal is that we should all become people. We start off and young, we need milk, and we understand, and I understand that. But the goal should be the more that we grow, that we become solid people, that, that have solid food, why? Because we have powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. And my job is to model that so that you, the practice is kind of, I'm giving you that practice and saying, look, here's how I did it, here's how I did it, so that you can learn how to do it on your own. And that makes the Bible study so much more exciting. You know, personally, I think it's, you know, I, I, that's why I, I long, I mean, it's, I think it's great when people, people you know, I'll, I'll people periodically come up and they'll, they'll say, why well, are studying this passage? Why did you interpret it this way? What do you know? And they'll kind of challenge me on something. And they're like, well, I don't mean to challenge you. I say, I'm like, that's awesome. You know, that's great. <laughs> you know, that's, you know it, I, I love that. You know, if you're studying the Bible on your own and, and come and let's have that discussion and I'll explain why we did it that way. And, and that's, that's awesome. There's a practical application as well. And that is, um, and that is when, you, when you do this, again, this is part of the modeling, is that you see, you hear, again, for those who have been around, you hear the, talk about the commitment to not an expository, which is systematic, but exegetical. And so again, it's, 
you know, really, unfortunately, it's become very uncommon for churches to be involved in expository exegetical preaching. Uh, if it's topical, it's kind of like, well, here's this topic, and I'm going to go find a passage that speaks on it. You know, when I do that, I tend to find the passages that I like what it says about that subject. Um, when I'm studying expository, I'm reading whatever comes next. And there's a lot of times there would be passages like, do I really have to do this one? You know, you know, you know this is uncomfortable, this is hard. But devotionally, it's the same thing. You know, is there value in devotional books and things like that? Yeah, there is, but, but part of our diet should be expository, reading systematically through sections of the Bible. And then especially exegetical, seeking to read out of. Exegetic means read out, versus eisegetical means reading into. So we're committed to reading out of um, and so what does the Bible say? So that's the first idea, okay, so it's, the, um, you know, so we're, we're looking here and saying, okay, what's the, you know, the main rule, uh, you know, is, is that the Bible is by nature understandable, practical, applicable, the perspicuity of scripture. Now these are kind of sub-points of that. The next point is that the Bible is God's complete message to mankind. And, and here's the idea of that. This is dealing specifically with the value of understanding the culture and the history. Let me give you a point here. It's, the Bible, it was, I think it's in the notes, it was written to transcend culture and is not limited by man's understanding of a historical culture. Now, what that means is that when you, you know, because sometimes you can study a passage and we can look at something and we can say, well, well, do you know the history of that? And we, we ran into that this morning. We ran into that this morning where you had even somebody inserted verse four into John chapter five and, and, you know, because it explained this whole idea of this pool and the angel, you know, the you know, superstition about the angel stirring the water. And, well, that's understanding the culture. The fact is it helps us understand it. But if that wasn't in there, you would still understand the whole passage. It adds color to it. It adds, it adds a little greater understanding to it. But you didn't need that historical element to understand what that passage was. It was there in and of itself. Another great example of that is, um, is Revelation chapter three. Uh, some of you might be familiar with Revelation three fifteen and 16. Uh, Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea. I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Uh, would that you were either hot nor cold, but because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Now, historically, here's the context of that. Uh, Laodicea was an extremely wealthy city. It had one drawback and that is it didn't have any access to fresh water. And so what they had is on the one hand, they had, um, you, know, they, you, know, you know, you have some places where you had hot springs, you had other places you had cold springs. What they had is they had fresh water that was a long, long way away, and it was brought in by aqueduct, but it was so far along away that it would often come in and it would come in stagnant. And so that was the one, when it was like the city that was known for its wealth, they had everything, but that was the one drawback is they didn't have good water. They didn't have access to good water. They didn't have wells, they didn't have, you know, it was just the stagnant water. And so what he's saying is, well, you understand this. You know, if you had hot springs and you had hot water, it'd be great. If you had cold water, it'd be great, but you got lukewarm, stagnant water. And he says, I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were either the hot or the cold, but instead you're lukewarm and you're stagnant and I spew out of my mouth. Now, it's interesting to know that, right? To know the history, so you read that, it's kind of, oh, it gives, some, it gives some color to it. But do you need to know that history to understand the, the core message? I mean, the fact is that if you know nothing about that history, it's still kind of obvious that Jesus is saying, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I spew you out of my mouth. 
I mean, it's, it's, it adds something to it. It adds, it adds color, but it doesn't add meaning. You see, and again, is there value in studying historical culture? Yeah, there is. Is it necessary to know the historical culture to be able to interpret what the Bible says? No. And sometimes when we think it is, it can get in trouble. I, I remember back, and I, I won't even mention uh, who, I'll, I'll just say a very well-known pastor. Um, a number of years ago, I heard a message that he gave on, on Matthew chapter two in the Magi. And, uh, and I heard this, and I heard some other people, he was on the radio, and some people heard it, oh, that was awesome. And, you know, and actually, they heard it, and they got me the tape, and it's, oh, you gotta listen to it. And, um, and so I listened to it, and I thought it was terrible. And the reason was, is that it was, this, the whole message was about the Magi, and it was about the history of the Magi. And all the applications were from history. You see, and it was eisegetical. It was taking history and reading into, and what happened is that he, it, may not, it may not have been, a, it was a good message. He, the ideas that he had were true, but they weren't biblical. You know, they weren't exegetical. They weren't from that passage. He took historical ideas and then developed it from history. And, you, and it was one of those things that, every, you know, you look at it and say, I never would have seen that. You never would have seen it because it wasn't there. It was a great history lesson, but wasn't a Bible lesson. You see, and the fact is that if the Bible is God's complete message to mankind, it means that if, it, if, you, if, there, were, if there were historical facts that you needed to understand it, God would have put it in there. It wasn't like he, you know, people almost say, well, you know, people at their time understood this, but because we don't live in that time, we don't understand. Well, again, we might, it might illustrate certain points of it, but God knew that this was gonna be a book that was gonna stand the test of time for 2,000 years. Whatever we needed, he put in there. Whatever he didn't put in there, we don't need. Now, building on that same idea, it's not only history, it's also language. The Bible is God's perfect message to all people in all languages. Now, what it means is that is there value in studying Greek and Hebrew? And yes, there is. Are there th times that I learned from some of those? Yes, there is. There is value in studying those things. But while the original language may help clarify and illustrate the meaning of a text, the meaning is always defined by the passage and never by the Greek or Hebrew word. And again, we get in trouble with this. Pardon me? So while the original language may help clarify and illustrate the meaning of the text, the, the core meaning is always defined by the passage and never by the Greek or the Hebrew words. Now here's, let me give a great example of this, all right? And this one is really, really common. Um, I hear all the, I've heard many sermons on, you know, the four words for love. And it's really interesting. You have agape, you have phileo, you have sturgo, you have eros. And, and it's really interesting. And, and what's true is that the English language has a single word for love. And the Greek has you know, agape, which is you know, biblical love. It's the, the highest of love. You have eros, you know, the, the romantic, the, the physical love. You have uh, sturgo, which is, um, is, is parental love, family love. And phileo, which is you know, brotherly love. And so it's, it's interesting how the Bible uses different things. And, and 
Now, the, the fact is, is and in fact, uh, C.S. Lewis went, wrote a wonderful book on this, and it's, it's really interesting. But the fact of the matter is, is it's a terrible sermon. Because, you know, the, while it's interesting to look at it, and it might help illustrate these different words, the fact of the matter is that the text has to, you know, the, what God says about love transcends the language. So what he says and teaches about the nature of love, whether it says agape or phileo or whatever, it might help illustrate which one of those things is, but the fact is the text in itself, the Bible interprets itself. So the Bible and the text interprets what the meanings, what, what it's trying to say. But if I come and I spend the whole message talking about agape and this and here's the Greek and here's the this, what I'm doing is I'm preaching out of a, out of a Greek dictionary. I'm not preaching out of God's word. And not only that, but I'm also again communicating that the Bible isn't that real, you know, that accessible to you because you're not as smart as I am. You know, you're not as educated, so you need somebody like me to come and understand it. And the fact is, no, the Bible is, is accessible. Um, now that being said, you know, you look at that and you say, okay, what do we know about it? Again, this morning we talked about the reliability of our translations and, and you need to have a good translation. And so you want to find a translation that you have, you know, and again, periodically you have translations that change meanings. They aren't seeking to be accurate to the original meaning. They're trying to, I think that that's why we moved away from the NIV back, uh, back a number of years ago because they were changing things that were there. They were not being accurate to what was there. Uh, the English Standard Version is probably, um, probably, in my opinion, the most accurate. But you have some other really wonderful, accurate translations. But if it's accurate to what God's Word says, the fact of the matter is, it's, it's His perfect message that transcends, in a sense, language. And so whereas Greek might be a little bit more, and, and it is, it's an incredibly precise language. I mean, if I, I, could, I could show you, like when you learn Greek, you know, they have the declension of one verb has like a hundred different forms. And it's got this whole fold-out sheet that you can say one verb a hundred different ways. It's that precise. And, and there are times that precision illuminates something, but the meaning doesn't change. You see, the meaning, the core meaning of God's word is something that is transcendent in English, in German, in Greek, in whatever language it is. And if, and if you have, a, if you ever, you know, get to the point where you have this idea that, well, you know, well, I need this to be able to, no, if, if, you, if you could only find it in the Greek word, you know, it's again, you're probably reading into instead of reading out of. Um, it might illuminate it, but it doesn't give new meaning. Does that make sense? So... Well, that, I don't understand the meaning. Yeah. Illustration wasn't of any value. Well, and that's, and that's, there's somewhat truth, you know, and a lot of times, because there, there are times, I, I don't bring out the Greek, or the, I do it every once in a while when it really helps. I try not to use it that often. Um, but again, I, I should be careful to try to say, okay, this is the meaning. And, it, and what you find, some of you that have been around here know enough that sometimes actually when I use the Greek, I almost use it humorously to make this point 
you know, in a different way. And so, so you know, there have been times I'm like, you know, okay, this passage, you know, this word for all, do you know what it means in the Greek? It means all. You know, it's like, you know, and it's kind of like, and, you know, so I'll do that kind of thing. And part of what I'm trying to say is, okay, this is, you know, this is available here. And there are a few times, I, I'll tell you, when we get to John 21 in a couple years, um, you know, when Jesus asks him, you know, you really love me, and, and the fact that he used two different words there for love help you understand that, but even that's available in the English because it shows, do you really love me more than these? Do you really love me? You know, and he changes the word there. Um, so it's helpful to illustrate it, um, you know, but it should always be illustration. But sometimes, number one, we can, as pastors, we can make our point from the wor- words, not from the, the scripture. But then number two, and this is part of my concern, is that you need, practically you need to understand this because you, don't, you shouldn't feel like you're limited in your ability to understand because you don't know the Greek and the Hebrew. No, you're not. You know, this is the Bible is God's complete message to mankind. You don't need to know the history. You don't need to know the languages. His truth is, is written in a way that it transcends those things. And it's accessible to all people, you know, uh, in, in the, you know if it's a well-translated version, it's accessible to all of us because that's, that's the power of God's word. It's a written word. It says a lot about my theology of God's word. It's not... It's not even the accuracy of the translation. It's the, it's the power of God's word where it's a living uh, word of God that is still being spoken, in a sense. All right, now point, point four in this, and this is, again, it's a little different on this, but it's, it's all connected. See, because it's all about what is, what is the main point here. We're talking about that the Bible is understandable, practical, and applicable. And so it's the perspicuity, so that's understandable, but the applicability is this. Here's some heavy theology, okay? The main question to answer in every passage is, so what? The Bible is by its nature practical. And, and again, this might seem like a small point, but we're gonna see it's a really, really, really big point. You know, because we can sit there and we can, well, we wanna study this theology and what happened here, the Bible is by its very nature something that is not only understandable, but it's also applicable, and the applicability is something that is there for us to discover. And so every time you study the passage, it sh- we should always be asking, well, so what? You know, I can sit there and say, well, this happened, and this was a neat story, and okay, well, so what? So, so what does it mean? What's God trying to teach you? What does God want you to think differently? What does God want you to do differently? What is God calling you to do in response to him? What is the practicality? Let me give you a great passage that speaks to this. 1 Timothy chapter, um, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different, any different doctrine. Now there, and, and, I've, and again, here's a scripture, interpret scripture. I've heard many people talk about this passage and say, well, in Timothy, what they're talking about is Gnosticism or this or that, or, and they talk about what these different doctrines are. Well, it tells you right here. You don't have to figure that out. Don't go to history. or It tells you what the different doctrines are right here. So not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What was the wrong doctrine that they're teaching? It wasn't wrong doctrine about the nature of Christ, the deity of Christ, how you're saved. It wasn't any of those things. The wrong doctrine that they were teaching was meaningless speculation. It wasn't necessarily that it was wrong, it was irrelevant. 
The aim of our charge is, to, is, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. And what he's saying here is the aim of this charge is saying every time we study the Bible, every time that we dive into it, the aim should be a love, a changed heart that issues from this pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. Have we become more loving? Have we become more like Christ? Are we, has it changed you in some way? And so that's the question, okay, okay, that's what the Bible's about, that's why we study the Bible, but certain people, verse six, swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make such confident assertions. Now, here's what he's saying, the false teachers weren't people that were teaching necessarily false doctrine. In fact, when you look at this, what they were saying may have actually even been right but it was false in that it took people away from applying God's truth. Now, I, I tell you places that I've seen this. Uh, you know, even the denomination I was part of for a while, I mean, at times you had some people that would get so much into doctrinal discussion and they were so concerned to be doctrinally pure, you know, that we'd be arguing over this doctrine and this doctrine. And, and, and again, I, I'd agree with them on the doctrine of it. You know, but it'd be like, you know, and I even would tell them, you know, you know, kind of more on the Calvinistic side, you know, at times it's like, man, it seems like you're more concerned about winning people to Calvin than you are to winning people to Christ. You know, it's, um, you, know, it's it, you know, it's not that I disagree with that doctrine, but let's get back to the gospel. Um, or another place, when you look at this and you say speculation and, and you, know, you know, desiring to be teachers, you know, um, vain discussion. Another place that we can sometimes do this is end times. You know, we can, we can talk about end times. I remember my sister was, uh, you know, was, had moved to um, uh, Columbus and she was visiting a church. She said, I really like the church. And so we were talking and she's talking about the pastor and, 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 and she was doing this long thing about end times. And, and I said, well, let me ask you this. When you think about the, like the last, you know, been there three or four weeks, what is the application? And she thought about it for a while and then she said, well, the main application is because Christ might be coming soon, we need to, we need to share the gospel. We need to win people to Christ. And, and so I, I looked at her and I said, does that mean so that everybody that existed up till now that weren't right at before the end times didn't have motivation to share the gospel? I mean, if that's the application, that's a horrible application because it's saying that our only motivation should be the closer, you know, if we really believe we're to the end times, we should be more motivated, and if we're not that close to the end times, we should be less motivated. The Bible gives us a lot of motivation for sharing the gospel, and that's not one of them. And so you look at it, well, what's the application? Well, she, she couldn't think of anything, but she had all these arguments about when times and this and that, and when, you know, it was, was really interesting, and I'm not even saying it was wrong. You know, the, the debate whether it's right or wrong is irrelevant in a sense. I think that's what Paul's saying. But he's saying the fact is, is it's turned us away from the, age, the charge of love that it's just in pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. It's not changing lives. It's not what is God speaking to us and asking, so what? It, it could be great theological truth and you could be 100% right, but if there's not a so what, then you've missed something essential about the nature of the Bible. Because it's not only by nature understandable, but it's by nature applicable and should always seek to be applied. Now let me give you two examples that, that literally, is, you know, that, that in two different passages, for those that were with us you know, through December, there are two times in December that I'm looking at a passage 
and I started studying it one way, and this rule, this reminding of the rule, totally changed the direction of my study. Okay, first one. Um, Matthew chapter one, verse 18 through 25. We were studying, for those that were with us this week, on that week, we were studying the whole, you know, the, uh, you know, the perspectives on the birth of Christ, and we were looking at the whole question of, the, uh, of, of Joseph. And, and I remember studying this, and, and this whole study of, of Joseph, um, you know, talks about, you know, the angel came and appeared to, to Joseph in a dream, and he was, you know, was gonna divorce her, and he said, Joseph, you know, don't be afraid to take Mary. And I'm studying all this, and, and everybody that I'm studying, commentators, all these different people, they're talking about the context of Joseph and his faithfulness, which is really interesting and really encouraging and really challenging. And, and I'm going down that path even in my own study, and then I remembered, okay, well, no, the Bible is by very nature pl- applicable, and the question is, so what? Well, everything that I'm studying isn't asking, so what? All it's doing is it's talking about Joseph and his decision. And I realize that if the Bible is by very nature applicable, it's not just talking about Joseph and his decision to follow God here, it's telling me something and it's challenging you in something to say, okay, what is God calling us to do? How do I apply this to my own life? And suddenly the whole passage changes. Or then, you know, it was a couple weeks, I think, uh, before or after that, John chapter three, we were looking in John chapter three and the whole, whole thing about John the Baptist. And this incredible thing about, you know, he comes to Jesus and he says, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, they're worried, but people are going to Jesus and from him. And John says, you know, a person cannot receive one thing except that it was given from him. He says, I'm not the Christ. Uh, you know, he, the one who is a bride is, uh, has the bride as the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom stands before her. He says, you know, he must increase and I must decrease. And it's a great passage. And again, this was another one. I'm studying this and everybody that I'm studying talks about you know, Christ and the prophecies, and, and, which is all true and it's all wonderful to study. But I come back and as I'm studying this, I remember the main question with every passage is so what? So it's not just about John and John looking at it and saying in his context, okay, he must increase and I must decrease and he's the Messiah and I'm not and I'm the forerunner. Yeah, that's all part of it. But the passage isn't about John, it's about God challenging me. And I've gotta say, okay, what is God challenging me to do? How is God calling me to save the, you know, these places where I wanna be the, you know, the bridegroom? Where is God calling me to decrease and, how, and, and, and let him increase? Where do these principles apply to me? And suddenly my whole understanding of the passage radically changed. And, and, and the, you know, when I talk about these things, it, they, you know, they really are, they're, for me, they're, they're deeply, deeply rooted. Um, and they're so deeply rooted that they, they shape the way that I study the Bible. And there are times that I, that I start studying something and I see it one way, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm focused on one thing and then I remember one of these rules and I say, oh, I've gotta apply it. I've gotta look at, okay, what's the application here? Okay, where's God in this passage? Where's, you know, okay, you know, I'm trying to figure out what this word means. Okay, what's the context say? Scripture interprets scripture. And these things, they, they really, when you understand them and the more that you embrace them and the more they become the filters by what you see God's word, they really shape things. They change the way that you study. They change the way that you understand it. They, they change the way that you apply it. Um, and it makes it, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, when I say some of these things, I mean, Sandy could tell you more than anybody, 
you know, it's really true. I, you know, I'll come home and I'm like, man, I, you know, I didn't see this before. I didn't really, you know, it's fun to see. It really is fun. It's fun to study God's word. And, you know, and I'm discovering these new things all the time. You know, but it's not that, again, I had to, it's not, it's not necessarily a seminary as much as, yeah, I have been a believer for how many years, 50 years now almost. And, and you know, I, as a pastor, I've been studying for 30 plus years. And, and so, yeah, there's certain things that I'm going to see more because of just the number of years I have under my belt. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's something that we can all discover. And, and even some of these rules, some of these guidelines are things that the, the more that we interact with them, the more that we see them. That's why I share them so often when I, when I even on a Sunday morning. Here, here's how I found it. Because I'm hoping to model these guidelines because they're, they're things for all of us to use. Does that make sense? Any comments or questions? Yes. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. Um, the reliability of modern translations. I'm sorry. I, I did forget to put that up there. I'm sorry. And, that, and that's important to understand because, again, I mean, we kind of dealt with that a little bit this morning. Um, but we probably have all heard those arguments about, well, the Bible's not reliable. It's been translated many times and copied many times. And, well, and, and it, we kind of explained some of that this, you know, this morning, as if you were here this morning. But it's important for us to understand the reliability. And, and not only that it's well done, but if it's well done, it's accessible to us in the English language. And so I've really paid attention over the years to the different verses of the Bible. And I heard a pastor on the radio the other day talking about how many times the New American Standard didn't have this word that the King James does. And not once did he manage to go back to the original Greek to say, was this translated properly? Yeah. And I think that's important that you know, they're not going back to the original text when they're make, trying to make their claims. Yeah, what's interesting is that whole argument for King James only, and some of you... You know, some of you have, have interacted with that. Many of you, hopefully, you haven't, which is good. Um, you know, but there there are some people who believe that, and the primary passages they they believe this one passage that Jesus talked about, one jot tittle won't pass away, and they they interpret that as being that there's this um, that God will supernaturally intervene in the translation of the Bible in one. Language, in each language so that it will be a perfect translation. Um, which again, puts the authority in the translation more than the Bible itself. See, again, I, number one, I think that's a really bad application of that passage. I don't think that's at all what it's saying there. But beyond that, some, something deeper theologically, it's actually attacking the authority of the Bible. And it's, and it's elevating a translation and, and, and lowering the Bible. And I look at it and I say that the Bible is such that the Bible is written, it, it's God's living and active word. And it's written in such a way that it's, it's unlike any other book. So it has the ability, if a translation is done well, to communicate its message 
um, you know, accurately before, you know, before God as God's living and active word speaking in, in all languages, in all cultures, in all times, um, which is, it, it's, a, it's a very high view of the Bible that doesn't need to rely on kind of cheating with this, this kind of question, questionary um, um, view of translations. So, but I would, and even for those that were here today, actually historically, when you actually get into the translation, the King James is not the most accurate translation because it's based on much older documents. And again, it, not a lot has changed, but if you want to be the most accurate, you go to the oldest documents, and uh, which again, that's why I think you have NIV, or not in ESV, is again my favorite, but you know, uh, NLT, different translations that are really good. I can't, I, I can't answer that question. I, you know, I, I can give you an answer that I think is right, but I'll hesitate because I'm not sure it's right. So. Mm-hmm. But in today's English, it wasn't. And he said to me, he said, well, when you, have to, when you have to translate the, interpret the English from the English, maybe you ought to look at something in the language you speak. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I will tell you, there are a few times that you have, I forget what it was, there was a passage not long ago that it was, the King James word was, was a beautiful word, that, that it was an English word that we don't use anymore but it was probably more accurate to the Greek than the ESV because it was just a more precise English word. But again, you got the meaning in either one. <laughs> you know, it, it, it added a little bit of, of, of color, um, but the meaning was evident in either one. And so is there, again, is there value of studying these things? You know, I, yeah, you know, is there value of commentaries, of, of Greek, of Hebrew, of history, of, yeah, there's value in all those things. Um, but not too much. And we're going to come back to that into, when we get to the devotional guidelines, that, you know, that, we've, you know, that there's a danger in actually putting too much value in, in these things, not only for me as a pastor, but in our own study. And, and I've made some of those mistakes at various points in my life where I've become too dependent on, on the commentaries or too dependent on these other scholars, uh, which actually has taken me away from God's word. I'm not reading what God has to say to me, I'm reading what God said to somebody else, and, uh, which can be dangerous. So, well, I, I, I'm enjoying this, and I hope that you are as well. And the goal with today was to get through the first half of kind of this gu- guideline, so then next week we're going to hopefully get through the second half, and, um, and I hope it's helpful. If you have, as you think about it, have questions, again, you have my uh, email address, and, and I really look forward to being able to dive into it next week. And uh, we're going to cover a lot of, lot of, as you could tell, we're going to cover a lot of ground uh, by God's grace next week as well. And um, I think there's some, some great principles yet to discover. So let me close in prayer. 
Father, I thank you so much for the chance that we have to come together again this evening, and Father, to be able to spend this time studying your word. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that it is your word, that your word that speaks to us, that is living and active, and Father, that you, you make it accessible, that Father, that you can, that is something that, uh, that is unlike any other book. And uh, Father, I thank you for the, for the ability that we have to become students, that Father, by your spirit, that we can come and study it and become workmen that don't need to be ashamed, who, who learn to rightly handle the word of truth. I thank you for each person here, and Father, for the desire to become that kind of a student of your word. And Father, I pray that you would continue to give us that hunger, that, that, that desire, that love of your word. And Father, that as we study, that you would continue to by your Holy Spirit, open up these truths and help us each to discover and then to challenge each other in, in that study as we, uh, as we seek to not only know your word, but through it to become increasingly like your son. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks.